week, Tommy brought us a good and timely word about our core value, we, we are better together. And I both succeeded and wildly failed at that this week. You know that point in the sermon where Jesus, or Jesus, hey, Tommy, Tommy said to you, turn to your neighbor and say, hey, you need me. And then turn to your neighbor and say, hey, I need you. And it's like awkward and weird. And you're like, why does he make us do this every time, right? Well, the point being that it's easier for us to say, hey, you need me. Let me help you out, right? Uh, as opposed to saying, hey, I need you. Can you help me out, right? Well, this week I had the awesome blessing of helping a couple friends who were stuck at home with sick kiddos, having a hard time and whatnot. And it's so fun when we get to be a blessing to each other. But then guess what? My kid got sick, right? And Tommy is gone coaching his little heart out. And all I needed in this world was some juice boxes. Oh, Jesus, I needed some juice boxes. Because <laughs> he was so dehydrated and he wouldn't drink and whatever else. But do you know what I didn't do? I didn't tell anybody. I did not ask for help. I didn't want to inconvenience anybody. I didn't want to put anybody out. So I uh, drugged my child with Tylenol. And then I put him in his car seat. And then I went through the McDonald's drive-thru and got juice boxes and apple slices. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time in the history of the universe that anyone went through the drive-thru of McDonald's for juice boxes and apple slices, right? But shame on me. Shame on me for listening to a sermon and then not doing it. And I just want you to know, next time my kid is sick, y'all are bringing me juice boxes. Because we are better together and I need you. Well, today we are going to be exploring our fourth core value. We give our lives away. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves, the kingdom of God. We join in God's work so people can know Jesus. Something bigger than ourselves, the kingdom of God, the grand story of God's redemptive work in the world. Now, we've talked quite a bit, actually, about overarching narratives before. These defining stories that shape our values and our choices and our devotions. And it's this big, sometimes abstract concept, so perhaps it's better told with a story. Now, as most of you guys know, Tommy and I got married really young, like babies. Like, we should have signed permission slips before we got married, right? I was still in college. And right after we got married, we hopped on a plane and went over to Italy where we were serving as volunteer missionaries, a.k.a. we did not get paid. We paid them for the privilege, okay? We earned lots of money to go over there and work. And anyway, many of you guys have lived abroad, and so you know what I'm talking about when I tell you that living abroad is an eye-opening experience, right? Because things that are really hard to see in our own culture, like values and quirks and ways of being in the world, are really easy to see in other cultures because they are so foreign to us, right? Now, our goal in Italy was to build relationships with people, to embody Christ-likeness to them and help them respond to God as God kind of awakened their spirits. It's like really organic thing, right? And so we did this by teaching English and having movie nights and parties and um, Bible exploration. And Tommy helped coach a, a football team over there because that's what he does, right? But the other thing we did was we would join our students wherever they were going. So, like, we would go to parties and art shows and, um, and some clubs and bars and coffee shops and all these places because that's where our students lived right? That's where their lives were. And that is why I gained 20 pounds in Italy because I ate so much food at all of the restaurants that we went to, right? And um, the thing that we, <laughs> it was from the food, not the alcohol. I did not drink. It was from the pasta. Let's be very clear. Now, it became clear as we were a part of Italian culture 
and particularly among the young adults, uh, this thing called the bella figura, roughly translated, the lovely image. Now, life revolved around making the right impression with clothes and possessions and jobs. Are you seeing this picture? I forgot it was up here. Aren't we cute? We're so European, aren't we? We're just so cute. I totally got robbed at that party, by the way. It was so great. Uh, but anyway, life revolved around the right impression with like clothes and possessions and jobs and connections. And it required being seen in the right places by the right people. So we would like go from different club to bar to club to bar with these people at night. Because they were like, oh, so-and-so's right here. We got to go there and be seen, right? La bella figura. And so Tommy and I, we would go to the gym because I was trying to take care of the pasta problem. So we would go to the gym, we'd be working out, and people would work out for like, I don't know, like 20, 30 minutes. And then they'd be in the like, locker room for like an hour because heaven forbid someone saw them outside the gym in their workout clothes. No way, no how, ain't no doing, okay? Because being seen and maintaining that bella figura it was central to their culture and was a part of what it meant to live the good life. Now, that is an orienting narrative, a big story that dictates their behaviors and their values. And of course, there is way more to Italian culture than that. That is very reductionistic perspective. But that particular aspect of Italian culture was in our face all the time. This bella figura, okay? Now, before we all shake our heads and wag our fingers and be like, oh, those Italians, <laughs> For what is clearly a cultural story and understanding of the good life with some major holes in it, we have to look in the mirror. Because every culture has a big story, an orienting narrative that shapes our behaviors and our values. And it's really hard to see our own because it's all we know. It's the water we're swimming in, right? You don't know it's cold. You're in it all the time. So with a little help from the Google, I explored what maybe might be part of our big orienting story of our culture in the United States. Now, I stumbled across this website called the Refugee Center, and it is a website that is a hub for refugees that come from all over the world, and the purpose of the website is to help them integrate into our culture. So it says, this is how you get an education. This is where you would apply for a job. This is how you go to the grocery store. This is how you don't offend your neighbors by, you know, whatever. Uh, it's this how to live in America tutorial. It's fantastic. And there's one page called American values, where it describes American values to those who come from different cultures. And their goal is to explain American culture so that these people who are coming to our country can learn to interact with their neighbors and their communities in helpful ways. Like, this is how you borrow your friend's lawnmower, okay? That's how it works. And so they want to help them understand what it means to be American. So here are a few from the website. Do you know what the first one was? I bet you can all guess. Independence. Right? Tommy talked about it last week. It's an obvious one. We value independence. Now, this is really, really seen with our kids because in most of our minds, not all, but in most of our minds, when our kids graduate high school, we have three expectations. You're either going to get a job, you're going to go to school, or you're going to have some feasible plan of getting out of my home. Right? And so when the Italians, they were like, you left home at 18? That is very, very cruel. Like, they were looking at us with pity. Like, your parents, that is so abusive. 
Like little did they know, like Tommy, as soon as they handed him his diploma, he like skedaddled to the dorms as fast as he possibly could. But there, there was no need for pity there, I assure you. But the thing is, we value independence both in ourselves and in our kids. And so that's something that we want to, we want to embody, right? And we want to instill in our children. So independence, big shocker. But another one that Americans really value is privacy. We need our own space. Certain things are off limits, okay? Like it's not okay to ask someone how much they make. It's not okay when you go to someone's house for dinner to walk into their bedroom uninvited. That's awkward, okay? It is also not okay to get up in somebody's personal space in the line at the grocery store. Like the only circumstance under which someone else's body should be touching mine is if we are escaping a burning building. And when we are safe, get away from me, okay? Like we value that little bubble, okay? Now, another thing that we really, really value is equality. We want people to be treated uh, equally regardless of race, socioeconomic status, etc. No caste system, no house of lords, thank you very much. Now, this is a value we claim but have not always embodied well. Nor do we to continue to embody it well with our history of slavery and Jim Crow and gender discrimination and against the poor and the like, okay? But it's an ideal. It is something to which we aspire even though we fall short on a regular basis. It's a big part of the American story. Now, you know what else Americans value? <laughs> Competition. Americans are very competitive. And I am so very American here. Like, you do not want to come up against me on Family Feud Christmas Edition, okay? I will destroy you, and I will not even be sorry. We played this at the Bennett, at the Bennett Christmas party with all the single moms, and I think it made a girl cry. But I, I got the prize. What? <laughs> But we are busy people and we are engaged in a lot of activities and we value getting stuff done because we're gonna work that hustle, baby. That's what Americans do. But we also are marked, we value consumerism. Now, before you think I'm just judging you for getting the latest Apple Watch, calm down for a second. Part of our competitive nature is wanting to have the newest and the best, not because we just like new stuff, but because we see it as a reflection of our work ethic. And hard work is valued, and hard work produces stuff, right? So we see it as all integrated together. New stuff isn't just new stuff. It's a symbol that says, I have worked hard, I have made it, I have achieved something, and I've made something out of my life. We value that. Now, that's the good life in America. Independent with our own space to inhabit. Equality, we say, we're working on that because there are some major holes. But competition to keep those fires blazing. The hustle is hustling, the new stuff to buy. Those values all inform the big story of what it is to be American. Now, some of those characteristics are great. And it's why we've thrived in many ways as a nation. Some of them are a little bit questionable, right? And some are downright sinful. And here's the thing. Every single culture, whether it's Italian or American or anything in between, every nation, every people, all of us have to hold up these stories, these values, these defining narratives up to the penetrating light of the gospel. All of the stories and values and cultural narratives, all of our culturally and contextually informed understandings of what it means to live the good life must submit to the gospel. The one true story, the truest story, the ultimate narrative of God's saving action. And whatever doesn't match up between our culture and the story of God, it's got to go. 
Because when my cultural values and my national identity and my story bump up against the gospel in conflict, the gospel must win. Does that make sense? Because two competing narratives cannot coexist and result in a life of faithfulness to Jesus. You got to serve somebody. And that somebody needs to be Jesus. Not a nation, not a set of cultural norms, not a flag, not a certain lifestyle. Jesus and Jesus alone. And so the reality is, we can get pretty comfortable with a mashup of our cultural story and the story of faith. We can, like Paul says in Romans 12, get so well adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. And very easily, God, the idea of God, just becomes another value on our list. Right up there with independence and personal space. An idea that we value, a higher power at work, an idea that helps us explain hard things on occasion, but makes very little demands on us. That requires no transformation or obedience. So the question we must ask is simple. Not easy, but simple. Does Jesus have permission to upend that list. The list of the things that we value, of what drives us, of what defines us. Does Jesus have permission to redefine the good life? Does Jesus have permission to point out where we are beholden to a false, idolatrous story and value system and place in us a new story? One that asks something of us. Now turn with me, if you would, this morning to to John chapter 12. That's where we'll be reading today. Now, for those of you who've been in the church for a really long time, and you're familiar with the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know that they each tell the story of Jesus' life, but they all tell it in a little bit of a different way. Lots of similarities, but kind of a different flavor like a different emphasis with its own lens through which it tells the story of Jesus. Now, John in particular is unique because it was written much later than the other three and had lots of different sources than the other three letters. So like even what Jesus says on the cross in each book is different, which is kind of disorienting sometimes. But one theme between all four gospels that stands unshaking is Jesus' pronouncement that to save one's life, you must lose it. For the sake of Jesus and the gospel, the good news of God come down to save, rescue, and restore. To save one's life, you must lose it. In every single gospel, Jesus declares this to be true. And in every case, while the specifics of the circumstances in which he declares it are different, Jesus is holding up the listener's big story their orienting narrative, their system of values up to the light of the gospel, and they say, your story is false. To the Jewish disciples that were eager for Messiah to redeem Israel and bring freedom and autonomy and earthly success and kingship, Jesus declares, to save one's life, you must surrender. Your idea of the good life, of national restoration, of power, of control, of might, of revenge against the enemy Rome. It is a house of cards built on a false understanding of what God wants to do for all creation, not just you, all people everywhere. And so in John 12, where you turned in verse 20, we find Jesus is approached by two Greeks. They're two Gentile guys, so that means they're not Jewish. Now keep in mind, 
a chapter and a half ago, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead and word got out, you know, like it does when people get resurrected, okay? But then Mary comes in, this big victory, resurrection, Mary comes in and anoints Jesus for burial. And you're like, dude, that's awkward. He just raised a guy from the dead. We're on an upward cycle here. But she anoints him for burial. It's so strange. And then immediately following that, Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. The grand entrance in Jerusalem that causes people to pull branches from trees and cloaks from their backs to make a path for the coming Messiah. So it's like high and low and high and low. This roller coaster. Jesus of triumphing and then speaking of his death. So he enters Jerusalem in glory. And then this. Let's read verse uh, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life will lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, these are not really the words of a winner, folks. They aren't the words of a guy who was about to bring Rome down on a tet. Jesus is upsetting their storyline and their values and what they hold dear. He is shredding their understanding of what is the good life in which they are the conquerors and the bad guys get what's coming to them. He is telling a different story altogether, one that is bigger than Israel. It's bigger than Rome. It's bigger than freedom and autonomy. It's bigger than financial gain and relief from oppression. Jesus is telling them, Oh, so subtly, the story of the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom of God. He is redefining this big story and the good life in one fell swoop. And it's so different than what they and we want to hear. Because God's kingdom, God's victory over sin and over death comes not by power and might, but rather it comes like a grain of wheat a tiny seed tucked into the ground, a seed that dies in order to bear much fruit. This is God and God's way. Now, when we hear these words, we, of course, immediately think of Jesus' death on the cross, as we should. He died. He was buried like a seed in the soil in order to bring us to God, the fruit of salvation. But Jesus isn't only speaking of himself He's speaking of his followers as well. Because you remember what those Greeks said to Jesus when they came to him? They said, we want to see Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of John, if you read through the whole thing, they talk about vision all the time, seeing all the time. He heals a lot of blind people in John. And we're not just talking about blind like I can see my hand in front of my face. We're talking about seeing as knowing and experiencing, okay? So the blind man in chapter 9, he's the guy that gets healed, and then the religious leaders come and be like, tell us, did he heal you? Is he da-da-da? They were like bullying him to get him to say things about Jesus. And the formerly blind guy says, hey, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner. All I know, once I was blind, now I can see. And he walked out, 
and he worshiped. Seeing is revelation. Vision is coming to see Jesus for who he is. Now these Greeks come to Jesus having seen all the wonderful things that he's done, the healings and the resurrection of Lazarus and the triumphal entry. And they're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. We want to know this guy. We want to experience this man who is so clearly powerful and doing amazing things. We want in on this story. But instead of recruiting, Jesus instead tells them about a seed, buried and forgotten, hidden and sacrificed for the sake of the harvest. And then he calls them to do the same. He says, those who love their life, meaning those who cling so tightly with a white knuckle grip to comfort and security, they're going to lose it. And those who hate their lives, not like I hate my job or I hate my house or I hate my car, but hate as in I refuse to have undue attachment to the things of this world, its comforts and pleasures and values. Those are the people who will actually keep it. Keep it unto eternal life. Now, when we think about eternal life, we almost always think of heaven as some faraway place. But for John, that wasn't a reality in his mind. Eternal life is the life of the age. The age of God's kingdom breaking in. He says, you want to experience the kingdom of God, then you must hate your life. Those who will release that white knuckle grip on the cultural narratives of security and wealth and image and power and instead embrace this self-emptying, self-pouring out, self-giving away life that refuses to be attached to the false images of the good life. They are the ones who will truly live. Live life as God intended it both now and forever. You want to see me? Jesus asks, you want to see me? You want to know me? You want to experience me to be a part of God's radical redemption story? Then come and be buried with me. Like a seed, hidden, unseen, forgotten even. Giving your life away for the fruit of salvation in the life of others. Now, in the early 1700s, there was a group of Jesus followers called the Moravians. And they came together for a multitude of reasons, but one of which was they had a burning passion to spread the story of Jesus to places where his name was not known. And so this was a time when going on the mission field was a pretty permanent assignment because many died in their place of service. Some people even packed their possessions in an actual casket because their chances of return was so slim, they were like, hey, you got a, can't be buried in a suitcase. Might as well bring a casket, right? It was an investment. And so these two men felt a deep, deep burden for the people of the West Indies. There were slaves there who had been brought from India and were serving as slaves in the Caribbean. And when they were told, you're not going to have access to these slaves. Like, we want to go and teach and preach. And they were like, no, you can't talk to them. You can't preach to them, nothing. These two white European men, attempted to sell themselves into slavery to work alongside the people and share the gospel with them. Now, history is unclear as to whether or not they were successful in actually selling themselves as slaves. Most sources say that it was so repugnant to the slave, uh, slave owners to have a white slave, they were like, absolutely not, I won't even buy you. And so instead, they worked their carpentry trade on the side and ministered to people in the community through their trade. But what captures my heart and my imagination is the idea of two men 
born and raised in Europe, free white men, with every privilege raised in a culture that, especially at that time, was deeply convinced of its superiority, particularly over nations of color. These two men took the story of their culture and its superiority and the idea of the good life, which meant security and prosperity and ease and position, and they held it up to the light of the gospel, and they said, you know what? This doesn't match. And when it doesn't match, the gospel must prevail. Our culture, our values, our understanding of the good life must fall at the feet of Jesus. Christ is not calling us to comfort. Christ is not calling us to ease. Christ is certainly not calling us to a position of superiority. Christ is calling us to come and die that others might know the Lord. In fact, as these men were leaving for their assignment, their leader, Nicholas Zinzendorf, charged them with this incredibly inspirational message. He said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. No promise of glory there. No illusions of grandeur or fame or even promises of success. Just a command to faithfulness not only to the message of Jesus, but to the method of Jesus to give our lives away. Our lives are like a seed tucked away in the soil of faithfulness, hidden, sometimes seemingly even forgotten for the sake of the kingdom, because we're trusting in what? in the resurrection power of God, that our death, our pouring ourselves out for the other, will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, my guess is that approximately zero of you are headed to the West Indies to sell yourselves into slavery this afternoon. And that's our block. That's our congregational block. Because we hear these dramatic stories of sacrifice and uh, think, here I am I, teaching math to a bunch of smelly 12-year-olds. Here am I selling cars. Here am I driving a school bus. Here am I balancing the books. Here am I making lunch and doing the laundry. Here am I selling the product. This doesn't apply to me. There is nothing showy. There is nothing dramatic. There is nothing earth-shattering or even really newsworthy happening here. And I actually get that feeling. I get it. But oh, how wrong we are. Because you are where God has placed you, and it is enough. And there is work to be done. As you teach, as you raise those babies, as you fix those cars, and you build those houses, and you work that farm, and you drive those buses, and you balance those books, as I write a sermon, or I chat with a friend over a cup of coffee, or I meet with people in the community, Jesus comes to me and asks, do you love your life? Are you hanging on to security and comfort and independence and the need to win with a white-knuckled grip? Or are you ready to let me dismantle that empty story, to hold it up to the light of the gospel and to allow the gospel to show you the holes? Are you ready to let me redefine the good life and allow this story to be reshaped from one that revolves around you and your goals and your plans and your comfort to one that is centered in God's saving action for all of creation.
Are you ready to be a seed? Tucked away in the soil of faithfulness, hidden, sometimes forgotten for the sake of the kingdom of God. Are you ready to give your life away in the everyday, in the teaching of the students, in the fixing of the engines, in the loving of your wife, in raising those babies, in serving in the church, and engaging in your community? Are you ready to give your life away for something bigger than yourself? The kingdom of God. That others might know this Jesus. I will never forget how strange it was to experience the pursuit of that bella figura in Italy. It felt so odd and so hollow and so contrary to a gospel-centered life. In fact, I was quite judgy about it. But my prayer is that we will hold our own culture up to the light of the gospel and that we will get just as uncomfortable with the consumerism and the abuse of power and the hierarchies and the ungodly independence that prevents us from loving and receiving love well and see it for what it is. It is an empty story that cannot fulfill us. It is a promise of the good life that is hollow that cannot keep its word. And only in saying yes to Jesus both to his message of redemption, but also his method of delivery, of pouring his life out, will we discover the truest story ever told of God determined to rescue his beloved and of the good life, a good life centered in faithfulness, true vocation and purpose. I want to sing an old song as we close today. It's old, older than me, and it's not even very cool. Like, I didn't hear it on the radio this week and think, oh, we got to sing that. But it says exactly what the prayer of my heart has been and what I pray will be the prayer of your heart as well. It simply says, yes, Lord, yes. Yes to giving my life away for your sake as you gave yours for mine. Yes to rejecting false stories and hollow promises that our culture, that say it all revolves around me. Yes to being a seed, buried, unseen, and faithful to bear fruit for the kingdom. So will you sing with me? Some of you might not know it. Sing it anyway. Yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. Let's do it one more time. Yes, Lord, yes. To your will and to your way, I'll say yes, Lord, yes. I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. Jesus, 
Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life away on our behalf. Thank you that you were willing to be a seed, buried, unseen, forgotten, hidden, in order to bear fruit for our salvation. And Lord, we recognize that we are surrounded by lots and lots of stories that are calling for our attention and our devotion, that are promising us the good life. But Lord, it's all lies. It's empty. The only true story to be found is the story of you come down for us, for us and for all of creation. And it is in that story where we will find our purpose, our vocation. And so, Lord, would you help us today say yes to you? Say yes to faithfulness exactly where we are. Say yes to giving our lives away to be a part of a story that's bigger than us. The story of your kingdom come, that others might know you. Lord, help us to say yes, both to your message, but also to your method, your way of pouring yourself out. Would you help us to be obedient, to trust and obey? In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand and receive the benediction? In our church, we extend our hands to receive the blessing, the good word that is spoken. Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place knowing that you are invited into a bigger, truer story. And would you embrace your vocation as kingdom people to give your life away exactly where you have been placed. Now go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen. And amen. Can I get some gum? I deliver it.